Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. The Equal Justice Initiative says there were 4,400 lynchings of black people in the U.S. between the Civil War and World War II. These lynchings peaked between 1880 and 1940, but the practice of terrorizing black Americans didn't end there. It was the Civil Rights era when in 1967, Georgian native Winfred Rembert survived a near lynching and then spent seven years serving on chain gangs. After prison, he married and moved to New Haven, Connecticut. It was his wife, Patsy, who encouraged him to become an artist. He carved and painted his life scenes on leather. His art would be shown in museums and galleries around the country. He told his story to Tufts University professor Aaron Kelly, who co-authored Rembert's autobiography, Chasing Me to My Grave, an artist's memoir of the Jim Crow South. Rembert passed away after its publication, but this month he posthumously received the 2022 Pulitzer Prize in Biography, along with Kelly. Today, where we live, we talk to co-writer Aaron Kelly and Rembert's wife, Patsy. His life, art, and legacy will be celebrated this week at an event co-sponsored by the Justice Collaboratory at Yale Law School and Public Humanities at Yale University. More information at our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Joining us first on Zoom is Patsy Rembert, Winfred's wife of 46 years. Patsy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Patsy, there's so many ways to start this conversation about your late husband, but I wanted to hear more about your love story. Can you tell us about how you met? Yes. Oh. Uh Winfrey walked up into my yard one morning and I was washing clothes and uh, and he said, miss. And when he said that, I turned and looked and saw that he was a prisoner and I took off and ran into my house and I told my father that was a prisoner in the yard. And my dad came to the door with his shotgun and he said, what you boys want? He said, we just want some water. And while he was talking to my father, my mother spoke and said, you boys working down there on that bridge? He said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, come up here at 12, and uh, I have lunch for you. I have dinner for you. And she did that up until she realized that Winford and I had eyes for each other, and then she made an excuse that uh, she would no longer be able to do it because she had errands to run. <laughs> so he was serving on a chain gang at the time uh, when he first saw you and you first saw him. And so then yes. how did your relationship uh, continue, given the fact that your parents were a little concerned here? <laughs> well, Winford um, found out which way my bus was coming to school, and he would pile dirt up with his machine in the road so the bus couldn't get by. And he would jump down off his machine and walk around the bus until he saw me. And he would tell me, girl, write me. Come on, write me. I don't know nobody here. Come on, get write me. 
And finally, he kept stopping the bus until the bus driver said, Pastor, just tell him you're going to write him so he'll stop making me late for school. Mm. So um, I told him I would, and I, I started writing him, but it was a secret. I couldn't write him at home and then mail the letter in the mailbox. I would have to write him at night, mail the letter at school. I would stick it in, the, they had a letter box, and I would stick my letter in the mail in the mailbox of their their mail. And then I would I would get home at three o'clock and the mailman run at 315. I would get his letters and I would put it in my pocket or hide it and go down in the woods and read it. Do you remember what he wrote to you about? Oh uh, about us getting together someday. <laughs> And about how much he cared about me. And I, I couldn't really fathom how did he care so much for me, but I cared the same for him. But I mm-hmm. I, I had to let him chase me. Mm-hmm. So how long did that chasing continue before uh, you were able uh, to proceed with a relationship, uh, Patsy? And, and how did your parents uh, find out? Well, it was, uh, I would go to my grandmother's house and I would... Uh, Home my hair, and then I'd ask her, could I go to the store? Because her house was above the chain gang. And I would go to the store, come across the field, and come down to the road and walk to the camp to see him. And a friend of mine would meet me, and she would go out there. Her name was Margaret Nelson. And one Sunday, I did that, and one of the boys that come to see me, because I had suitors, there was a lot of boys coming to see me. So uh, one of them saw me going out there and he tried to pick me up and I wouldn't get in. So he did a donut in the prison yard. One for them come running down the, the the road to see why was he holding me up. He took off and told my mom and dad I was going to the chain gang camp. Mm. <laughs> and that's how they found out. Yeah. And so did you ever wonder, well, or did that talk or through your letters about, you know, how he ended up on the chain gang? No, I never really cared about what he had done because I knew so many people had did so many things until that was the least thing on my mind about why he was there because I knew if he had had somebody that he was working for that was had any influence, he wouldn't have been on there in the first place. So I didn't really never ask him. What was it about him that made you fall in love with him, Patsy? Well, I I think I it was love at first sight. I had saw him once before on the, sitting on the back of the Changang truck, and I had told my mom I had saw the prettiest boy in the world. <laughs> so uh, during that time, uh, it's just his charm and the way he uh, would talk to me, and he would include me in his conversations and stuff when he write me. It was like he was sitting right there. Talking to, so, so you would go on to marry Winfred. Uh, tell us that date and how you ended up in Connecticut. Well, we got married, uh, nineteen seventy four, December the twenty eighth, and um, we first went to Rochester, and his father, that he called his dad, which was not his real dad, but he called him dad lived in Bridgeport and he had worked on the docks and he told me if he had a job for him. And so we moved to Bridgeport. So he was working as a longshoreman? 
Yes, he's working as a longshoreman there in, uh, in, in Bridgeport. You would go on to have, I believe, uh, six boys and two girls. So when did he find his art? Did you have something to do with that, Patsy? Well, I knew he could draw. And after he started getting sick and the doctor, he had a heart attack. And the doctor told him that he could no longer work on the bulldozer. He couldn't do the heavy equipment anymore. And he was trying to find different things to do. And I had suggested that he do his artwork, do some art. And we moved to uh, New Haven. And that's where it really began. I started, I had already been after him for a long time that I thought he was, um, he could draw real good. And I had been in him for a long time to get started. But then we started taking in cheering off the street. And he was telling me some of the story about his life. And I thought that he needed to put it in a book. He also needed to do illustration of some of the scenes that he would be talking about. And he said, don't nobody want to see nothing I do or hear nothing I say. He said, I would love to write a book. And finally, uh, he met Aaron Kelly. And, and it had been other people who wanted to write the book, but they just didn't suit him. Mm. But we'll be hearing from Aaron in just a few minutes, but I wonder if you could describe for our listeners, tell us more about his art, because this wasn't pictures on a page. Instead, it was uh, carving scenes about uh, his life, his upbringing, the things that happened to him on leather. Yes, that was my idea for him to put scenes of his life and then write a brief chapter about that particular picture that he would do. And finally, he did a picture for a friend of ours, Phil McBlain and Sharon McBlain for a Christmas present. And the picture sold for $300 and he couldn't believe it. So his friend Phil asked him, said, can you do more? He said, yeah, I can do plenty. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much how he started once he found out that somebody would buy something that he did, that it was good enough to be bought. And he learned uh, to work on leather when he was in prison, Patsy? Yes. He learned from a guy they called TJ. And uh, after he learned how, the guy didn't want him to do it anymore because he could put so many different things on on leather. And the guy that was putting the rolls on it, and he could put other things. He was helping him. And he got jealous of what Winfrey could do, so he took his tools away. But... Being the type of person Winford was, he went and made his own tools. Mm. You can yes. see some of our some of Winfred's uh, art on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. But can you describe some of the scenes that he carved and painted, Patsy? Well, he did a picture of a cotton field. And that cotton field was a scene right out of my life. And uh, he did a picture of himself. And then he did a picture called All Me. Now, the picture All Me had me confused. I didn't know where he started. I didn't know where he ended it on it. But he explained that picture to me that all the people that was in that picture was him. And that he felt like he had to be that many people in order to survive when he was in the chain gang. He had to become whatever situation came up. He had to fit that situation in order to stay alive. Mm. 
You're hearing New Haven resident Patsy Rembert here where we live. Her late husband was Winfred Rembert, an artist and civil rights activist whose biography just won the Pulitzer Prize. After the break, we're going to learn more about his life story with his co-writer, Erin Kelly. We talk with her after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Longtime New Haven resident Winfred Rembert told stories through his art, carving figures into leather, then painting the scenes with vivid colors. The stories were of his life in the Jim Crow South, including his near lynching in Georgia in the late 1960s. Rembert would go on to tell his story to Tufts professor Aaron Kelly. Their book, Chasing Me to My Grave, an artist's memoir of the Jim Crow South, received the Pulitzer Prize in biography. His memoir is described as, quote, an account of abuse, endurance, imagination, and aesthetic transformation. Erin Kelly joins us now on Zoom. She's a professor of philosophy at Tufts University. Erin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So when did you first come across Winfred Rembert, his work and his story? I came across his paintings online and. I think it was 2015, I saw the painting of prisoners that Patsy was describing earlier called All Me, uh, Prisoners in Prison Stripes. And I just thought it was a remarkable painting, really imaginative, contemporary and modern in its sensibility. The subject matter really interested me. And I found out that it was painted by a formerly incarcerated man. And I became interested in the story behind the painting. And I got in touch with Winford and ended up interviewing him. And we started working then on the book together some years later in 2018. So we'd stayed in touch. Um, and I'd actually invited him to come to my university, Tufts University, to talk about his artwork. Um, and then eventually the idea of doing a book um, together unfolded. What was Winford like? Again, he passed away uh, last year. But when you first met him, what struck you about Winfred? He's very charismatic. He's very open emotionally, and he has an incredible gift with language to describe things and to tell his story. He's just really a gifted storyteller and thoughtful person. So I think the combination of his charisma and his openness and his remarkable life experience that he was willing to talk about really fascinated me. And it, it felt important to give him an opportunity um, insofar as I could help him to tell his story more widely. You're a professor of philosophy, so even before you met Winfred, were you thinking a lot about the criminal justice system in our country, the impact of, of mass incarceration? Yes, I'd been working on a book, a philosophy book, about criminal law and ethics, questions of social justice. So it's something I've been concerned about for a long time and um, helped me to become interested in, in Winfred's story. Mm -hmm. So you would travel to New Haven. I believe Patsy and Winfred lived in the Newhallville uh, neighborhood, and you would sit and just talk with him. Uh, I'm wondering how you got him to open up about uh, not only you know just his upbringing and his memories of Georgia, but his near lynching and the other painful parts of, of what he experienced. 
Well, it was it was a process. It was a it was a journey. Uh, we met many times. I spent a lot of time with him in his house. Um, turned the tape recorder on and invited him to talk about whatever he wanted to talk about. And he was eager to talk about those things because he felt that it was important to um, tell that history from his own his own life that was also the life involved the lives of other people and what they've been through. So uh, it was just doing a lot of listening and creating space for him to talk about what he felt was important to talk about and to have the book go in the direction that he wanted it to go in. Winfred, again, has talked about surviving his near lynching uh, many times, and we thought it was important for our listeners to hear him describe it in his own words. Here's an excerpt from an interview that Winfred and Patsy did for NPR's StoryCorps in 2019. The police caught me and put me in the trunk in the police car. And when they got to their destination, they opened the trunk and I saw all of these white people, and I see these ropes hanging in the tree. They took off all of my clothes, put the noose around my ankles, and they drew me up in the tree. I thought that was the end of my life. The next thing I see was the deputy sheriff who I had locked in the cell. He took his knife, and he stuck me with the blade You could probably hear me for miles, scream. And I could feel the blood running down the back of my neck to the ground. And then from out of the blue, this man said, don't do that. We got better things we can do with this. I don't know who this man was. Only thing I can tell you, he had on a brown suit and some brown wingtip shoes. Again, that's Winfred Rembert speaking to StoryCorps back in 2019. Aaron, if you could fill in some of um, the the context surrounding uh, this moment in Winfred's life. I had asked Patsy earlier when uh, they were going through their courtship of how he ended up on the chain gang. But before we get to that, how did he end up at this moment? What had happened to him in Georgia uh, that led him to this near lynching? It's hard to listen to that moment. It's very, very painful and difficult experience. He had been and he had become involved in the civil rights movement and had gone to America's Georgia to participate in a demonstration. The demonstration turned violent because some white civilians showed up with shotguns and Winfred was being pursued by two armed men. He ran down an alley in America's and he saw a car with the keys in it. And he jumped in the car and drove away. So he'd stolen this car and was arrested some days later in Cuthbert, Georgia, for the theft of the car and was put in prison, put in jail, the local jail there in in Cuthbert, where he sat for almost two years. No visitors, no charges he knew about. Um, He became frustrated and plugged the john with toilet paper and flooded the cell at which time the deputy sheriff came back to the cell and started um, cussing at him and beating him up. And Winfred had decided he was not going to fight back, but the beating became so brutal that he decided that he would fight back. And he struggled with the deputy sheriff and managed to take the sheriff's gun away from him 
at which time he then locked the deputy sheriff in the cell and he fled. He went to the home of some people he thought would uh, protect him and help him out, and they ended up betraying him and calling the police. So the, the scene he described was what happened after the police came to the house where he was hiding and um, rearrested him and um, beat him up and then drove him to the edge of town. And what, what ensued is what he then described. Again, you're hearing Aaron Kelly here where we live, professor of philosophy at Tufts University, uh, co-author of Winfred Rumbert's uh, autobiography, Chasing Me to My Grave, an artist's memoir of the Jim Crow South. Uh, his wife, Patsy, is still with us. Patsy, you've heard uh, Winfred tell what happened to him many times, and, and Aaron's right, it is painful to hear, but this is something that he relived time and time again. What was the impact on him, and why did he decide to tell his story in this way by carving his life uh, into leather? Well, it was my idea for him to put it on leather because I knew leather would was in, it would it was during that leather was a material that you could touch, and it was a material that nobody else was doing any art on, and I thought it would be unique and different. And that it would draw attention that people would want to know what was he doing. So that was one of the reasons. Mm-hmm. What was and another one was this story mm-hmm. I thought was very needed to be told. Needed to be told. What did it do to him to have to tell it over and over again, to relive that? Can you describe that for us? Well, he was already going through. Uh, memories of it that caused him to have uh, nightmares, and he was he was under a lot of pressure when he would write these stories and do those pictures. It would bring back memories to to him what he was telling me as if it was happening all over. And at night he couldn't sleep, he couldn't rest. He was traumatized by what had happened to him, and it was an ongoing thing. That um, and it just got worse as time went on. He would fight in his sleep with somebody, and uh, he felt like he told me they was always chasing him, and he was afraid that it was gonna catch him, and what would happen to him if they finally caught him in his dreams. But uh, he was traumatized by what happened to him, and he could never get over it. And he was seeing psychiatrists, and but nothing really seemed. He was taking medicine, and but nothing seemed to stop those nightmares. Aaron Kelly, you're still with us. Uh, when you have these conversations with Winfred, when you use this memoir as a way uh, to also revisit these these difficult moments in his life, can you talk us through again the again the decision to do so and and why Winfred felt this was so important, because it had an impact on him still. The decision was Winfred's to include this in the book. And I was, you know, of course, willing to go in whatever direction he wanted to go in. So it was important to him to talk about it. Um, it didn't heal him. It, it I, As Patsy was describing, it kind of triggered triggered the trauma every time he talked about it. But I think he felt that having this as part of the public record 
something that had happened to him and that had happened to so many other people was really important. So even though it didn't, it didn't resolve the trauma for him, I think it gave him some sense of justice to be able to talk about it publicly. And he really felt driven to do it. It was important to him to um, to kind of stand up and speak out. It was a form of resistance after the fact that um, that was a, a testimony that he he thought would help to commemorate um, sort of all the people who had suffered the sort of abuse that he suffered. And he was very courageous to do it. Yeah, I started the conversation reciting the statistic from Equal Justice Initiative about the lynchings that have happened uh, in our country. You know, and part of that, when we think about lynchings, Aaron, is that you know it happened a long time ago. But this happened to Winfred in 1967. Did that surprise people when they learned his story? I think I think it does surprise people. Patsy and I have been talking about the book, and people have come up to us and said, "This happened during my lifetime. I can't believe it was this recently." But the, this is this is recent history, and it's connected with the kinds of problems and tensions in American society that we're dealing with today. It's very much connected with the with the you know the nature of our public culture, our our society. Um, the tensions between the haves and have-nots, and really the long history of slavery in the United States. Well, Patsy, I'm wondering if you can add to what Aaron shared when we think about the tensions that exist today. What were Winfred's thoughts of the Black Lives Matter movement, this next generation uh, pushing for for civil rights? Well, his first thought was that we talked about it many times. And he felt like that uh, people my age and his age should talk about what went on and that white people should join in the conversation and try to come to some kind of conclusion on how we go forward from this point. What should be done? Because he was saying the way that you was raised is what you believe. But he felt like if he told his story, other Blacks would come out and tell their stories. And hopefully some whites would join in because they knew too. And that would come a conversation that we could come to an understanding and ask the question, why was these things done and why are they still being done? Because his story is about a lot of more young Black men and how they were treated at that time and still being treated that way today. There was a shift in our country when so many watched George Floyd murdered. What was Winfred's reaction when he learned of what happened to George Floyd? Well, he was horrified by it, but it was nothing that he wasn't surprised by it because it had happened to him earlier. He was just one of the lucky ones that didn't die from what they had done. They did enough to kill him. He just didn't die. And I, I often told him that the Lord saved him to do this book. So hopefully people will look at and read what happened to him. It's still going on. And what can we do about it? Erin Kelly, uh, so you finished the book, but this was also a time in Winfred's life where he wasn't in the best of health. And so how did you still collaborate? 
he was so determined to finish the book that he wanted to continue our work together, even when he wasn't feeling well. I even visited him, him in the hospital a couple of times, and we continued with our interviews. He he was just determined and as strong as he could be to get it done. But we were racing against the clock. We, you know, we worked with a sense of urgency and worked very hard for about two years. And we got it done. We got it all finished before he passed away. He was happy with the way it turned out. He had approved everything. And, you know, I'm just really glad we were able to to get it done in the way he wanted it to be. That book, again, is Chasing Me to My Grave, an artist's memoir of the Jim Crow South. Co-writer Aaron Kelly with me, a professor at Tufts University, and Winfred's wife, Patsy Rumberts. So... This book received the Pulitzer Prize in biography. Patsy, what was your reaction? I was just overjoyed that uh, he reached his goal and that someone recognized that it was a story needed to be told and heard. I was overjoyed. Aaron, what about you? It was astounding news. It really was. And I was just just floored by it. And also just so happy that a book like this, which it's really great because through a conversation between Winfred's art and his life story, it pulls people into a place where they can go back to, you know, this point, this era in American history, which, as we were saying, was not so long ago, and consider it with this empathy and understanding for the people that lived through it. Winfred wrote the book with a lot of love and also created his paintings with a lot of love for the people who, you know, suffered greatly under the injustice of Jim Crow. And to have a book like this recognized, it's an invitation for people to, to consider the, the, the life experience from the perspective that Winfred is able to, was able to create in the book and invites people you know, to ask questions and um, and 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 to feel what people went through. Again, you can see some of Winfred's uh, art on our website, ctpublic.org/slash/where-we-live. I understand some of his paintings are on view now at the Griswold Museum in Old Lyme, Connecticut. Uh, Patsy and Aaron, you both accepted the prize, I believe, just the other week. Patsy, take us to that moment when you're in that room accepting this prize, uh, you and Aaron, on behalf of, of your husband who passed. You received two. You received two. Mm-hmm. And I was overjoyed, like I said before, but the most that in that uh, astonishes me is Winford held no animosity in his heart against anyone. He just wanted his story to be told and for him to be recognized uh, enough to receive these awards. Oh my God, it's just wonderful. Mm-hmm. As children is on top of the world right now, knowing that their father's wishes, he was, biggest thing that he wanted was that someday his grandchildren, great-grandchildren would be able to pick up a book and realized that he wrote it, that this book was about him and that his story would be, it wouldn't be forgotten what happened. Mm. And I think that it's just wonderful, Mm. wonderful. 
his memoir exists, but his paintings also uh, are still with us. And when you look at his work, what are the pieces that stand out to you most? You did share one earlier with us, but are there others that when when you look at them uh, and you think about your husband and his immense talent, I wonder if you can share a little bit more of some of those paintings. Oh, my God. He did so many. And it's so many that I liked. I also liked the one, the school bus. He put all of his kids' name around the tire, around the tires on the bus. And he also did one of my mother. That uh, it's beautiful. He did a picture of her. He did a picture of my father. It's just so many. I couldn't, you know, each time I see one, it it strikes a chord because he did it with a lot of love and a lot of understanding and tried to make them where people wouldn't mind looking at tragedy. He did the black playground, uh, a playground of which our people would make for us because we weren't allowed to go in the white playgrounds. So they made a playground for us that the whites wanted to come in and join in because it was so much better. Uh, Patsy, I understand that your husband also spoke with young people. He told his story to students. What was that like for him? He was trying to educate them on how they should appreciate the opportunity to go to school. That was his biggest thing, education. Uh, because he didn't he was denied the right to go to school. He couldn't go. So when he would talk to them, he would talk to them about how much they should try to learn everything they can learn because it was there for them to learn. And the the, the uh, triumph in which they got the opportunity they could go to school without being hindered from learning mm -hmm. and that they should treasure that moment. Aaron Kelly, again, co-writer of the memoir, Chasing Me to My Grave, an artist's memoir of the Jim Crow South that you wrote in collaboration with Winfred. Uh, for those who haven't picked up the book, who may pick, do so uh, now after hearing both of you speak, what do you want people to take away from this memoir, Aaron? I think the memoir is an opportunity um, to, to learn from a person, a remarkable artist who had, you know, really serious difficulties in his life, but also a lot of triumphs um, to, to consider his perspective um, and to learn from the, the way in which he's able to put his art and his life story together in a, in, in a really powerful statement um, about um, his reflections on the past so it's an opportunity for us to learn from the sense he makes of his life looking back. Um, so his reflections and his memories are intertwined in a way that I think is really unique um, and interesting and, and special. So it brings us intimately into his sense of his own life in, in, a, in a special and deep way. Patsy shared earlier that her husband held no animosity within his heart, despite what had happened to him. What do you think about that, Erin? I think that it helped him greatly to have an approach to life where he, despite the suffering he had gone through, was 
open to opportunity and was able to to move forward to express himself to find ways to build his life um i think it saved him i think it saved him from um from a lot of bitterness and anger that might have made it difficult for him to um lead a good life and i i think patsy has some thoughts about that as well patsy well he also had six boys and two girls. And his conversation to me, it was harder for him to walk around with a frown and hate in his heart. And he didn't want to bring his children up with hate. He wanted them to judge a person by what they done, not what was done. But at the same time, the urgency for us as a people, as a black people to come together and start talking to our young people about how they treat one another. And he was hoping from this book that they could see we already been punished enough. Why should we punish each other? And he didn't want his children to grow up with hate in their heart for anybody. He wanted them to grow up with an understanding that people at this point in time has been raised a certain way to believe a certain thing. And how can we change that? For them to see a person uh, individually on what their marriage was, not on what the uh, past or what's going on today. Mm. So that's what he wanted to convey to his children. And that's why it was so important to him. He didn't want them to grow have, have hate. That's a, can I just jump in there? That is such a, a great example of the kind of thinking that the, the Justice Collaboratory is it is encouraging through hosting this special event in New Haven on Thursday, because they're really looking at the connection between individual well-being and community well-being, which I think is what Patsy is speaking to. And more information, again, on that event uh, Thursday night at ctpublic.org slash where we live. Patsy Rembert, thank you so much for your time on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Also with us, Erin Kelly, professor of philosophy at Tufts and co-writer of Chasing Me to My Grave, an artist memoir of the Jim Crow South. Erin, it was a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you. My pleasure. I wanted to end with a clip of Winfred Rembert from a New Yorker documentary called Ashes to Ashes. You'll hear hammering as Winfred carves scenes into leather. Can I send a message? Can I change this world? I can't change this world. I know I'm not a big enough man to do that, but I can put a dent in it. But you just keep going and going and going and going. I love you. I wish you could see me now. I wish you could see the work that I'm doing now, Mama. I wish you could be with me now. I hope you're up there looking down. Looking down at your child. Doing this leather work. I guess, Mama, you're one of the reasons that I keep doing it. Yes, you are. 
This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public. We'll be back after a short break. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. An arts festival has begun in New Haven, and the public is invited to visit studios or temporary spaces around the city. It's called Open Source, put on by Artspace New Haven, running now through October 30th. With us on the phone now is Lisa Dent, who's executive director of Artspace New Haven. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I know many of our listeners have probably heard of Artspace New Haven. For those who haven't, can you briefly tell us about its history? Yes. Uh, so Artspace was uh, started by artists who um, many had graduated from programs, uh, academic programs in the state of Connecticut in this region. And in 1987, they began to put together exhibitions of their own work in vacant spaces in New Haven. Um, and then in 2000, uh, we secured a, a 5,000 square foot space in uh, downtown New Haven on Orange Street. And so for 35 years, Artspace has been focused on supporting living artists. Um, we're a presenting organization, so we are uh, often providing exhibition opportunities for artists in the region and elsewhere. Mm. I mentioned open source, and so can we talk a little bit about you know this particular festival and how you've built on that work uh, through the years? What was important for you as you were putting this this festival together, Lisa? Yeah, so uh, when I arrived at New Haven, it was April of 2020. The pandemic was upon us, and uh, I was in conversations with the board to not only secure our financial position, which was very tenuous at the time because we'd had to cancel our gala, and then to think about how we could safely bring back public programming. And so the first year we prioritized online experience, um, artists that signed up had um, a more robust online experience than they had had in the past. So we were adding you know, 10 images as opposed to just uh, one. Um, and that worked really well. The artists that participated really liked having more work online as well. And then in 2021, um, we were interested in opening that more, but um, Omicron and the COVID surge happened. And I think we were still, you know, cautious and people were also cautious about coming out. Um, but this year, I really wanted to find ways for audiences to be able to engage with artists all over the city. Um, and so in the previous iterations, you had one large location that had artists who did not have dedicated studio space. Um, Yale West Campus was available to us. Um, in years past, uh, the Armory was able to be opened up. Um, but this year, we didn't have that. We didn't have one large space. And so with that, and then really looking at the um, Department of Arts, Culture, and Tourism's newly adopted cultural equity plan, which talks about the ways in which under-resourced neighborhoods um, are not involved in arts and cultural institutions' um, activities, we really wanted to reach out and expand um, what had been known as a citywide 
festival and really bring it into the neighborhoods that had not participated in the past. Mm. So we, this weekend, this past weekend, we were mostly on the east side of New Haven. Um, there are studios buildings at Erector Square and Marlin Works. We also had exhibitions that were open at the Ely Center, the Creative Arts Workshop, and they'll be open all week. And next weekend, we will focus on the west side of New Haven, um, with the exception of artists that are going to be at the Eli Whitney Museum Barn and um, at Foundry Square, a few other uh, spaces that are not normally open regularly to the public to see art. Uh, and we're excited that artists who don't have studio space and who do who work differently, don't work just in their studios or able to share their work with the public. So this sounds like an exciting uh, festival considering uh, what we've all experienced in the recent past. And so when we think about some of the people, the artists that are going to be participating, can you give us an idea of some of them? Yes. I mean, we have had a variety. Um, I mean, Erector Square is huge. There are five different studio buildings, um, but it was really lovely to see an artist like Judith Kruger. You know, frankly, Judith um, somehow was missed in one of our printed um, and website lists of artists, um, but she, you know, stuck with us, and I saw her leaving, and she had sold, you know, seven or eight works that weekend. You know, I, I felt so good about that. Um, and I also you know, heard from artists at Marlin Works. Um, Michael Angelis uh, was one of our neighborhood leads. These were volunteer artists that came to meet with us and cultural workers, I should say. Memphis have been meeting with us every month since April, um, helping us get the word out about the festival and encouraging people to participate. And um, Michael was able to really get all of the Marlin Works artists um, together and understand what we were trying to do. Um, so I was just very thankful for artists like that who are helping us get the word out. Again, this runs until October 30th. So the best place for our listeners to go to learn more about the spaces that are open, Lisa? Well, there are a couple of ways. Um, if you go to our website homepage and you scroll down a little bit to the Open Source 2022 Festival landing page, um, and right there at the top, there's a map, but there's also um, a link to all the studios and event locations around the city. Um, so that includes partnerships with the neighbor New Haven Public Library. Um, so Wilson Library um, in the Hill generously offered to, you know, create space for artists in their neighborhoods so they could show work, as well as the Q House and Stetson Library in Dixwell. And that, um, and that so, website is mm -hmm. artspacenewhaven.org uh, to learn more. Correct. Lisa Dent, thank mm -hmm. you so much, and good luck with you for the remaining days of this festival. Again, Lisa is Executive Director of Artspace New Haven. Thanks, Lisa. Yes, thank you. Take care. Bye -bye. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Special thanks to Gina Matruda, who was our tech director. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to talk about Connecticut's history of housing segregation and hear from Yale professor Tom Ellickson, who has a new book, America's Frozen Neighborhoods, The Abuse of Zoning. We hope you join us.